When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Our homes today are like little cities full of different internetic boroughs, like the entertainment district in the living room or the virtual fitness center in the garage. And Xfinity Internet keeps it all running smoothly with reliable speed to power all your devices at once. You get coverage around town from the financial district home office to the spa. Xfinity Internet keeps your little city humming with reliable speed and coverage. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Find great offers and value today from Xfinity. Go online or call 1-800-XFINITY to learn more. Restrictions apply. Geico knows there are many reasons why you ride. From the thrill of the revving engine and pure adrenaline of flying down the highway to the confidence of knowing that Geico always has your back with 24-7 access to claim service. But Ari Snyder has one reason in particular. I had extremely large upper arms. They won't even fit into most shirts. Thankfully, biking really embraces vest culture, so I feel accepted. Geico Motorcycle. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. This is the Cubs Related Podcast presented by CubsInsider.com. My name is Corey. I am joined, as always, by Brendan, and we are coming to you on Monday, May 11th. You likely hearing this on Tuesday, May 12th, but all of the days kind of blend together at this point. Anyway, so you may be hearing this on a completely different date, but hopefully this podcast is still somewhat relevant. We are still in a baseball-less world, but Brendan and I trying to provide at least some sort of entertainment and distraction for not only ourselves, but also for all of you lovely listeners of the Cubs-related podcast. And today, we are going to talk with Mike Bryant. More specifically, Brendan is going to talk with Mike Bryant. It was just easier to conduct the interview without me. Uh, you Brendan <laughs> you Brendan stands, I'm sure, are thrilled at that news. They're loving to it. All, oh, yeah. To the Corey Hive out there, I'm, I'm very sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you'll get a little chunk of me at the end here. But what we're going to do is we are going to air the interview that we did with Mike Bryant uh, as the first portion of this podcast, and then Brendan and I will jump back on on the back end to discuss a little bit of the news that the Major League Baseball owners have agreed to and signed off on a proposal that they are sending over to the Major League Baseball Players Association that then they will review. And, and the, the wheels are in motion for a potential 
resumption of play, but obviously still plenty of hurdles to jump over there. So we will talk about that a little bit. And just to give you a primer here, uh, Mike and Brendan talk obviously about Chris Bryant. As we mentioned before, uh, if you are not familiar with Mike Bryant, Mike is Chris Bryant's father, Christopher Lee Bryant, uh, former MVP of the National League World Series champion with yes, the 2016 correct, Chicago yes. Cubs. World Series champion. Yeah. He is a former player himself. He is a hitting coach. And obviously, if you are dialed into a lot of the Cubs stuff, he works as Chris's primary hitting coach in the offseason at their home in Las Vegas. So they get into, obviously, stuff with Chris Bryant. Talk a little bit about Rap Soto and some of the more advanced technologies that coaches and players are using these days. They talk about Chris's improvements uh, against fastballs up and in, in particular, some of the work that they have done to do that. Uh, They talk a little bit, as Mike is obviously a former player and a coach himself, they talk about a potential COVID-19 related shortened season, what that would mean for hitters, pitchers, teams, just general strategy and, you know, how that might look from a player and coach's perspective, Uh, some changes we may see, who's at an advantage, who's at a disadvantage, things like that, uh, just from his perspective. And then they also get into a little bit, as we saw in spring training, with Chris uh, adapting to the leadoff hitter role and Mike's thoughts on that and some of the preparation and, and what all went into that. So that is the interview that we will be airing in a second here. Before we do that, One thing before we do that, Brendan, uh, I do just want to note that John Lester was on Len and JD's new podcast. We have a little bit of podcast competition, Brendan. Not really. Uh, Len and JD are are certainly better at this than we are. Len has been a guest on this show, so I feel comfortable calling him a friend of the Cubs-related podcast. Uh, and they did their first episode. It's called General Admission with Len and JD. I believe it is an official Chicago Cubs podcast, so you can find it on Cubs.com. And if you search General Admission with Len and JD, uh, the logo is a Wrigley Field seat, so you should recognize it well. It was a very good podcast. JD is as funny as ever. They, the two of them have not missed a beat with their rapport. And as you might expect, in particular, Len is really good at asking questions. Uh, Oh, yeah. He's just very good at guiding a conversation, and I, I think especially with some of these players doing a lot of interviews this offseason, even with John, we've heard him on several podcasts already, uh, Len finds a way to ask different questions, get different answers, and, and, and keep the conversation interesting rather than uh, just repeating on some of the, the topics that we've heard already. But one thing I wanted to note, uh, and I, I this couldn't wait until the end of the podcast, and you know that, Brendan, uh, he... <laughs> John did go on, and there was some discussion because he he talked with uh, some people in the Red Sox sphere, I think a a week and a half ago or something like that. Uh, And, you know, he made some comments about returning to the Red Sox and about his time there that I'm not going to repeat on here because they are irrelevant, Brendan. But on this podcast with Len and JD, John said the following quotes. Obviously, I would love to be a Chicago Cub until the end. I want to play again next year, and hopefully it's with a Chicago Cubs uniform on. Now, I don't expect him to say any differently. Just like when he was talking with Red Sox people, John is not the type to close doors. He's not really the type to uh, be spitting vitriol for no reason. Uh, So I'm not taking this as gospel. Until we have the contract and it's in writing, I will not be comfortable 
Brendan, but it was nice to hear him say this. And I I tweeted something to this effect, but it reminds me of, of Andy on Parks and Recreation when he plays pool with Mark for the rights to Ann Perkins. And he says, I know that legally John is now a cub for life, but somehow it doesn't feel that way. And that, that's how I, I feel right now. Like I, I feel like his words on this podcast should be legally binding, uh, but I don't think that they are, Brendan. John is in on that podcast too. Like John mentioned him wanting to stay with two teams. There's only a few right. players. Yeah. Or I mean he he doesn't count the A's stint as as a team. But he mentions like there's there's a select few players who have played who have only played for two teams primarily. And he he values that. He values that type of loyalty, camaraderie, that history. So it's it is a little comforting to hear that if the opportunity is there for him to come back, he's going to take it. And then, uh, to be honest with you, Corey, like I think I think he is going to come back. Like his skill set, we'll, we'll get into it, but his skill set is a little bit more suitable for longevity. So if he even has an average year, I think he'll be back. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, Theo, I know that you listen to this podcast. Of course Every he does. Every single one. Uh, and I, I just want to say that on, on this episode with Len and JD, John, like you mentioned, Brendan, uh, said that he would like to stay with the Cubs, that it's you know sort of up to the Cubs to make that decision, blah, blah, blah. You better get that man a contract. Okay, I want a contract in the mail tomorrow. Uh, and if 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 we have, to, I, I don't even want to think about alternatives. He said he wants to come back. I don't care if he was just you know playing nice. You send him the contract, and we're going to get this done. Okay, that's the deal that we're making here. That's it. But like you said, Brendan, it was good to hear John basically say, like. I, I value only being on a couple teams at this point in my career. I'm not really looking to go to a new city or, or be adventuring out too much, kind of like what I know and, you know, would like to just kind of stick with that stuff. So uh, all things considered, we'll see how the 2020 season plays out and, you know, how that affects everything. But it sounds like John is open to another contract with the Cubs. And I believe I can speak on behalf of all of Cubs fans and the Chicago Cubs organization itself uh, in saying that that's also what we want. So let's just do it. It seems very easy. Um, Everybody involved is on the same page. So great. We settled that. And now let's get into Brendan and Mike Bryant's chat. We'll air that for a little bit. Again, they're talking about uh, all things Chris Bryant and some thoughts from Mike on what may be a potential 2020 season, a shortened season, depending on uh, what plan they are able to agree on. So hopefully you guys enjoy those thoughts and hopefully there's uh, you know some insight in there for everybody as to what some of this preparation for a shortened season and, and some of that stuff might look like from a professional standpoint. So enjoy that and we will talk to you on the other end of this interview with Mike Bryant. Keep all your entertainment options centered with Xfinity X1. Access live TV, Netflix, and now Hulu and Peacock. Ah, streaming zen. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Xfinity X1 gives you the most complete entertainment experience with everything from live TV to your DVR to on-demand favorites and your streaming apps. Just use your voice remote to easily find what you want to watch. Go online or call 1-800-XFINITY today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Netflix, Hulu, and Peacock memberships required. I've been riding a motorcycle for 52 years. I started having back pain that turned into a knee pain. I couldn't even sit on the motorcycle. I was like, oh man, am I going to have to give up riding bikes? Kaiser Permanente, they decided I needed a hip replacement. So I was going to do it through 
outpatient surgery. <laughs> Panned out great. Recovered overnight. Was home by 11 o'clock the next morning. I'm glad I made the choice for Kaiser Permanente. I'm enjoying life. Every medical case is unique. Kaiser Foundation Health Plan, Limited Atlantic States, 2101, East Jefferson Street, Rockville, Maryland, 20852. So, Mike, I know you're just finishing up in the cage with Chris. And I know your grandson, Kyler, is only about a month old, but I assume that we can anticipate him taking hacks with you in, what, the next couple of weeks, right, to get that going? Well, he gets verbal lessons now. He gets verbal lessons now, okay. He, he, he gets <laughs> seminars. <laughs> seminars, okay. So maybe by you know the end of his first year, we can get some of those exit velo readings from that rap soda. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be really cool. Pardon me. <laughs> So speaking of uh, Rap Soto, I know you and Chris work pretty closely with that technology. Uh, generally speaking, as a coach with Chris and with your other clients, what exactly is your thought process of using this technology? Okay, the Rap Soto measures uh, exit velocity off the bat. It has, it has the spin rate, measures the spin rate and direction, the launch angle, and how far the distance the distance that it went. So what we're looking to do is is to find correlations between between the you know the different metrics, you know, and the exit velocity versus distance, the launch angle versus distance, and then the spin, you know, how that affects it as well. So uh, when you when you what I have found and and I and boy this is gonna really rankle all these negative Nancy's on the on the launch angle thing is the, the furthest balls hit and it varies very slightly but uh, for some kids it's 25 to 30 for other guys it's like 28 to 33 in that range is where they get the most uh, carry you know when the ball and then the backspin it, it will it the backspin affects the distance traveled as well so if you have a little bit of side spin or the RPMs you know or, or, you know, 700 versus 3,800, you know, the RPMs affect the distance too, and then the exit velocity somewhat. The one that affects the distance the most is the launch angle. Mm. So you could have a low spin rate and have a, a right launch angle and the ball still going to travel is, you know, far. So so what you do then is now, you, now you're taking this data and you're, and you're, and you're applying it to each student, and they're all kind of different. So you know how they think. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to get them to you're trying to create a swing thought that that makes that moves the needle. You know that we need a little more launch angle. You know we need a little bit more exit velocity, uh, or you know try to backspin it. And and you're trying to find methods, you know, that the kid can understand to achieve the results. So. What I fell back on was uh, I looked at, uh, you know, I remember my Ted Williams stuff, and Ted never talked about launch angle. He just talked about the angle of the bat coming up to the ball. And he said that that angle was between 6 and 10 degrees. If you operated in that 4-degree range, and you could, you could uh, you know, make adjustments to your swing to either steepen it a little bit or flatten it a little bit, Depending on breaking ball movement, single balls, all that stuff, then you would positively affect the launch angle, the ball, the angle of the ball coming off the bat. Now, his focus was if you divided the ball into three sections, they're an inch and three quarters, you know, 
and that equals what five and a half that the circumference of the ball or the diameter of the ball. If you work on the bottom third of the ball and you work at the top part of the bottom third of the ball, and if you hit that spot right there and hit it with a six to a ten degree angle of the bat coming up to it, you will put the most bat spin. Well, you don't do it like a golfer does by like coming to striking the ball down with a, with a club that's built in loft to get the ball in the air. You know, mm-hmm. so they pinch the top of the ball, and that's how they spin. They're very different than golf. You want to hit the actual bottom of the ball because, you know, because the angles of the baseball coming in and all that stuff. So we, we can we can change, we can get more spin on the ball, and we can get more carry on the ball by applying, the, you know, the actual path of the bat, trying to meet right. the path of the ball. And right. so those numbers get affected. Now, if you have the gift of mega bat speed, you know, like a, like a, like Hunter Pence and Mike Trout had some elite bat speed, um, you know, over 95 miles an hour of bat speed, up to 100 in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you compare that to Altuve, who has, you know, what they call pedestrian bat speed. He's, you know, 84, 82, but he still hits the ball you know, 400 feet at times. And he gets a sizable amount of home runs for the type of player he is. It, it's not all, you know, about, oh, you're small, you can't get home runs. It's about executing the swing. So you develop the swing, and then and you do this for every kid, you know, that's young, right up to high school. And then if they need to make any type of changes to their swing, the adjustments are going to be so much easier. You want it, like, I've always said, if you need a 250 feet, on a line, you can play in the major league. Is that you can hit it in the gap, get it hard, you get a lot of doubles. You don't have to hit home runs, but that swing is very easily. You can adjust that and, and develop that swing a lot easier than you can if you have a barrel with a bat above your hand and you're chopping down the ball with a negative attack angle. So, on the attack angle is the angle of the bat coming to the ball. That's what Ted talked about. It. So, it's amazing how you can and this rap photo thing allows you to explore different things that you, you know, different ways of articulating what you're valuing to your hitter. And then, because some kids, some guys learn differently. You know, some guys learn visually, some guys learn, you know, cerebrally, cerebrally by thinking. And uh, every so everyone's different on how they learn. But, like, I had this kid yesterday. He, he, he's a chopper. And, and I put him on the rap soda for the first time. And he could see the numbers, and, and he was like, he, his swing changed right before my eyes, and I could never get him to do it before. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I wish I had that technology when I was younger. Yeah, me too. I mean, it was all, you, you were learning on the fly. But, so the Rap Soto, imagine what it can do for a big leader, okay, who has the ability to make these subtle changes in his swing. And it, it, it's impressive. I mean, I I see Chris adjusting from from pitch to pitch. It's you know one of the ways pitchers have attacked Chris lately is those up and in fastballs, right? So in 2018, the probability Chris saw a four seam fastball up and in was around 50 to 60 percent, and then in 2019, the probability that he saw a fastball up and in was around 75 to 90% depending on which, you know, region you're looking at. So this has been a kind of an area of focus and then 
looking at the actual data, Chris has been improving against those up and in fastballs. So that that says and suggests you and him have been working with that. And his exit velocity against those fastballs up and in towards the latter half of last year, and honestly, for the most part after May, it improved. So he was able to adapt pretty quickly. So I know you have all the data with the Rapsodo and the increasing launch angle, and it seems to be a theme across the league where pitchers are now reacting to that and going up, up, up with high heat, and in Chris's case, up and in. Can you speak to how Chris and just other hitters in general can now adapt to those up and in fastballs and how you can actually strategize and come up with a worthwhile plan to to attack those pitchers? Okay, yeah, there's a couple of ways you can approach that, okay? Um, is is that you always, you want to establish the, your, your strike zone, okay? So, so, you know, like, for example, you, you, you know, Chris starts with his hands right about letter height, you know, the uniform. Yeah, and Lee's yeah. used to start him right about just above the hip, you know, above the belt. And he never swung at pitches that were above his hands. So he established his strike zone. So he would, Ted would probably never get, a, get pitched up and in ever because all the umpires would just call balls all the time back then. Nowadays, they go harder and way harder. And, you know, so that the hitter, you know, he has to respect the speed, so he's going to be more apt to chase, you know, pitches up in the zone. So if the pitchers are, have really good command and they can throw strikes, then all you, your swing thought is that you just want to make sure that your hands stay at the top of the zone, and when you start to swing, you, you do not let that bottom hand drop. You let the mm-hmm. top hand just let the barrel fold back into the into that slot where it gets parallel with the ground without the bottom hand moving. And that, that that's gonna keep you uh, you know, get you in a better position to handle that Kai heat, especially this stuff in. And I think it's a, a trend throughout these major leagues right now because the launch angle thing, pit, pit, pitchers are taking that into consideration. You know, they don't want the they know they don't want the ball in the air. You know, they, right, they don't right. want hitters to hit the ball in the air, and they know that the, that the hitter is focused on that, and they think they have a way better chance by decreasing the the downward angle of the ball coming into the hitter, um, so that he has to be a little flatter with his back hand. So we just work, you know, trying to stay flatter and controlling the strike zone from the top down, and mm-hmm. and. Because it was just so much easier to to adjust top down than from bottom up. You can't look look down and adjust up. You can look away and adjust in, but you can't look in and adjust away. I just I can't see. do it, especially if they're spinning it. So you really you have you don't have many choices. You know, you just don't. I mean, a pitcher he can get you out so many ways, and that's why you know that's why the best hitters in the game fail seventy percent of the time. So, but yeah, so Chris doing doing better and better with those up and in pitches with a definite, uh, you know, it was a game plan in the offseason to be able to handle that. Um, and then coupled with the fact that you've got to lay off that slider down in a way, too, which he did after his rookie year. He, he used to chase a lot, you know, in his rookie year. He started getting more disciplined and laying off that slider down in a way. That yeah, helped yeah. with pitch recognition experience, too. You know, and I, I see. It's, I see. This, this game's not easy, man. I, I mean, it's 
it's frustrating. It's a very frustrating game. You know, you don't feel overwhelmed out there with the speed of the game, but with the movement on the pitches, I think that's what really, you know, that's what really messes up hitters, and that's what the pitcher's job is. Are there any measurements that you're looking at? Are you trying to decrease the attack angle so you can get to those up-and-in pitches? What does it look like incorporating that data to an actual outcome, which is attacking those up and in pitches. Yeah, you can. You can. Well, first of all, it's a number of things. You you can set the pitching machine. You you want to be able to control that that quadrant there, or that you know, that little square up and in. So you set the pitching machine in that area, and then okay. Okay. then you you just you know you want to take a couple hundred, maybe hundred swings, hundred and fifty swings in that area, and you start to see what type of results you're having, and then you look at the the you know, uh, you know your launch angle. Uh, you know, you might not be able to to impart you know thirty degree of launch angle on a on a on a pitch that's up and in, but you might be able to get twenty six or twenty seven on it. It's a little flatter. Mm. So so you know you got to think a little bit differently when you're attacking up and in. Um, you know, as far as launch angle goes, and again, you're not up there thinking, "Oh, launch angle, launch angle." You're you're you're, you're developing a swing path that you know you feel, and, and that that you can you know hopefully your reaction time and and all that in that moment produces what you're looking for. That's what you practice for. It's not like muscle memory or anything like that. It's just it's just being ready and being quick and anticipating pitches up there, and you just get better and better at it. As you work at it, as soon as they start, as soon as you start doing well, you know that pitchers can try to open up a, a hole, you know, in another part of the strike zone with you. So you're always, you know, you're always chasing it. You know, you never end. if you're ahead of the pitcher for one game, maybe two, you know, <laughs> then the next guy's going to adjust accordingly. So, but it's it's all in the swing process they're producing that that try to keep you within that within the parameters that are established by the rep by the rep solo. So it's a great training tool and that you have instant feedback right there. And you can say, okay, try to do this, you know, with your elbow or, or, or don't, you know, minimize that bottom hand movement or, you know, get your trigger right and, and, and see how that affects the numbers. You can always, you know, you can you can over-exaggerate any type of move you're making for the ball and, and, then, and then see what it does with the numbers. The ZEP tool always is cool too. That that does fast pass and hand pass too. You know, and and that's what Rapsodo does too. So the Zep tool, you get you can you can see a three D uh, you know picture of your bat pass, and they also have the the vertical angle of the bat, the angle of the bat coming across the plate, and the you know zero is straight across, ninety is straight down. So and obviously, you can work in a parameter there too, and then the attack angle of the bat actually coming to the ball. So that measures the Ted Williams too. So you can put both these things together. One of the areas of emphasis for you and Chris uh, was his posture. And so when he first came up, he was a little bit more upright in his stance, and then in 2016, he kind of went a little bit deeper in his uh, squat, if you will. I know you and talk you talking with Evan. You're, I believe, attempting to get that stance back to a more upright position. Is that in an attempt to influence that bat uh, that bat path against those high end and fastballs? That's the one main reason. Um, 
but also it, it kind of tends to remove a little bit of tension in, in the in in the body. It, you know, when you're squatted over, you know, you're in a flat position, and it's not a big squat when you really look at it. It just looks that way because he's six six, um, and um, you know, you have a little bit of tension in your legs, so you tend to be. It, it might slow you down a little bit. You know, if you're in a you know, Eugenio Suarez from the Reds, he's straight up with the bat laying his shoulder like that, legs straight around, just totally relaxed like that. That helped him a lot. And that's kind of what Javi has changed too over the years, Javi Baez. When he first came up, he was a little bit deeper in that squat. And then after Chili Davis came over, he kind of went into a more open stance, upright position. Yeah, it's kind of like they relaxed him a little bit more. He got to see the ball, you know, another couple feet of ball pass, you know, as a result of it. So, no doubt, it kind of slowed his, his mind down a little bit. The more upright posture does allow certain batters then to have greater pitch recognition, or is that just more dependent upon the individual batter himself? I think it's an individual thing. You know, you look at Ricky Henderson, he was crunched over so right. much, and you know, obviously he, he had no problem recognizing pitches. But so I think it's an individual. That's more falls in the category of style, you know, mm-hmm. than substance. But you know, you you can create, you know, you can create your own um, style, you know, that that suits you well. I mean, you know, there's been so many. Yeah, he used to hold his hands like up, up, above his head, you know, spread around so with with the bat. Dude, everybody had their had their way of doing things that were more or less would trigger their swing. I think Kowski used it as a trigger to start his swing. Yeah, I just think he used it as a stretching. <laughs> back stretching, you know, yeah. way up there. So I think, you know, when you when you actually look at video uh, and stuff, you know, all, all the best hitters they do the same things. When you know, before they get the bat in the slot, they have their own way of getting there. Once they're in slot, elbow, you know, again their their the bat rib cage, you know, behind them, bat flat, behind them, pointing, you know. Not necessarily a catcher, but more or less, you know, behind the hitter, you know, at a 45-degree angle. Once that bat gets lined up and it gets into that zone at that time, they all look pretty much look the same. As a former player and now you're a coach who works with, of course, your son and other athletes and aspiring players and, you know, professionals as well, with COVID affecting everyone's training resumes and everyone's uh, amping up to a shortened season for you as a coach, what are the most important steps for a hitter to get ready in what appears to be a short time? I know you and Chris are always working, so it's a little bit different, but let's say with your work with Chris, what are the most important boxes to check off uh, to gauge his readiness in such a short time? Let's say we're assuming a season for spring training will ramp back up in the next three to four weeks. What are you looking at from, like, a checkbox point of view? Well, the, the number one thing is kind of like what we did when we went down to spring training and hit, like, 11 home runs that, that spring training. was. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get him up to game speed before he stepped on the field down in Arizona. We haven't done that the last few years because, you know, doing stuff like that, it, it's, you know, you're, you're 45 days of just intense, in 95, 98 in the cage every single day, 150 swings. Every single day. Right. Yeah. Tension builds or has the potential to be that way. 
But we did it because I wanted us to kick ass and take things, you know. I mean, I, I really believed he had a chance that if he did something like that, he was going to make the team little bit. I know that he was all about the business world, you know, which spurred the grievance, which is all this stuff. You know, I really believed that, you know, that they were going to do the right thing, you know, if he did, if he made, I said, you go out there and make, make, make Theo slurm in his chair. It's the hardest decision that he ever has to make in his life, you know. And, <laughs> and he did. Right. Yeah, he, he did. He did it. So that's what we did. The number one box to check is to get the game, get it at game speed for the last, like, week to ten days before you had to spring train it. In this case, it's going to become necessary. Um, what's going to be interesting is I think the hitters are going to be way ahead of the pitchers going into this. So, so now we're looking at a half season. You know, you set your goals, 30 home runs, you know, 325, you know, 100 ribbies. That, that's doable, you know, very doable. People run it the all-star break with those numbers. So, so you know, so you put those full season numbers up in a half season. And uh, so that's another box to check in the goal. But be ready. Number one is to be, you know, be ready for the speed of the game because it's going to speed up real fast. So that's the number one. Do you envision managers maybe being a little bit more flexible with their relief pitchers, or do you think hitters will need to have more days off because you're going to have a shortened preparation between now and the start of the season? What do you envision a shortened season looking like in terms of a strategy and preparation uh, point of view? Well, if I was an everyday player, I would I would insist on and prepare myself to play 82 straight days, 82 straight games, period. Yeah. No break. I'm Cal Ripken. You know, I joked with Matt, and after he did Chris's first day off, after like, I don't know, 15, 20 games, so I saw him in the and after that, they said, so, Joe, does this mean Chris has absolutely no chance of breaking Carol Whitman's record? He, he laughed. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was definitely broke. And I said, yeah, that by young, 511 years. But, but um, so, so that's what I would do as a player. Now, pitchers-wise, they're going to expand the losses because there's no minor leagues, you know, so they're not going to have anybody to bring up. So they're going to probably have 40 guys, you know, on the field, and 30 guys will be a game roster. They'll probably make a game day roster every time. I don't know how it's going to affect options and all that stuff. So they're going to have to work all that out. But they're going to need to have 30 guys. That's only four extra guys. Um, and it's going to be pitching. It's going to be the pitching that they're going to have to, to really pay attention to. Like, you know, they're going to have enough players to, to do what they got to do. If somebody gets injured, you know, you'll tap into that, that pool, that extra pool of 10 guys. Um, that are working out with the team every day and just trying to stay baseball ready, you know, um, yeah. kind of hedging against injuries. But I think the short leash on the starters, I think there's going to be a short leash on the starters, five innings. I think they're mm-hmm. going to go heavy into their pen, and I think they're going to, they're going to have a couple closures, you know, that, they, that, they, that they're going to rely heavy on. So um, a lot can happen in this short season if they're playing it with the same intensity level that they would be playing 162 games. And what's at stake, even though it's a crazy format and everything that, you know, there's a playoff, there's a World Series to be won. I think there's going to be a, an incredible sense of urgency to win a bunch of games. There's going to be, you know, I know they expanded the playoff thing, the four, they're talking about the 14 teams, but uh, there's going to be urgency 
no doubt to win. So they're going to have to use everything. The manager's going to have to use everything at his disposal. That's why they're going to need a bigger roster. That'd be interesting. I know you and Chris work together closely on anticipating changes pitchers are going to, to make to attack Chris. So going into spring training before it was shut down this year, were there any new adaptations you and him were working on in addition to up and in fastballs? Or what was the overarching goal in terms of adjustments that led into spring training this year? You know, I, I, we, we approached the off season this year in, in a, kind of a very laid back way. We just wanted to have a regimented work uh, program with, you know, where he's doing the same things over and over again in a routine with, with, with hardly any laser being focused. There was a, there, there, there has been a lot of distraction. You know, there, you know, Chris has handled them well, but I guess for me personally, you know, with just, just with the stupidness that's being thrown out there, the stuff I'm reading about my kid and like, you know, what, no clutch, this, and everybody's throwing numbers out there. You know that proves that everything that they're trashing them for is completely wrong. It's like it's like you know it, it's like you know baseballs are white. No, they're not. They're light blue. You know, and uh, and the sky's blue. No, it isn't. It's not light blue. You know, it, it, it's just everything. So all these distractions, you know, were were hitting you know, but he, you know, he's not. He doesn't hit with runners in scoring position. Oh, and you know, that's such BS right there. You know. Hit the RBIs and this. I mean, nobody, you know, I, I would look at the numbers and, and I go, are you kidding me? Chris had 62 less at bats with runners in scoring position than Jonathan, Jonathan Scope had, okay? And and he had 42 less at bats with runners in scoring position than no one Aaron you know? And, and you know, yeah, I mean, it's not that I'm bashing anybody, but for crying out loud, success far left, you know, the, the great lead off has done nothing but kill my kid. And, you know, in terms of he let off, you know, he probably let off more innings in the two-hole than any leadoff hitter did in the in the entire major league. And, and for me to say something like that, I can't back it up. But if somebody would take the time off, buddy, that, I'll bet you it's pretty damn close. When did Ross and maybe, uh, you know, the executives like Theo, did they come to Chris before spring training and kind of put forth the idea of him leading off? Because I know when the season is going to start, Chris is going to get a bulk of the plate appearances. And Ross said he's going to stick with this idea for several weeks, if that. So with that said, did did, did they come to Chris and then Chris to you? And did you guys work on implementing a new approach, given the information that, hey, he might be leading off for the first 40, 50 games of the year? He's going to be the hitter that he is. He is. He, he gets on base close to 400 clips, you know. I mean, he doesn't have to change a thing. He's going to get on base, whether it's home runs or doubles or walks or singles or whatever. So we don't have to change anything there. The reason, you know, it, I mean, him or Rizzo had, had the highest on-base percentages on the team, mm-hmm. you know. So no matter where they were in the lineup, that's what their on-base percentage was. Now, the question is, is, is we need, you know, Rizzo needs two guys in front of him like that, you know? And he had Fowler and Chris, you know, initially. You know, Hoppy's going to have to step it up, increase his take more walks and get on base. You know, Jordan gets, gets coming up 
fight, you know, so just to that line at the work, you could have had guys getting on base, and they weren't having that out of the one, out of the leadoff spot or the nine hole. So, you know, Madden would move the pitcher around to eight from time to time to try to, you know, increase the opportunities for Chris. And, and he did a great job with that when Chris won the MVP because he had 102 ribbies that year. And it was Fowler and then the, the, the nine hitter, not necessarily the pitcher, that was doing the job for him. You know, and still, it's not like Chris hit 350 with runners in scoring position. You know, he hit 285. <laughs> you know, that's a normal average. You know, and he might hit, he might hit 300 one year with runners in scoring position, but, you know, he doesn't hit 230 and then hit 370 with runners in scoring position. And all of a sudden, you know, Jose Reyes is the guy you want up with the guy, the guys in second and third in the game on the line. Oh, get, come on, man. I mean, Jose Reyes is a great player. I just threw that name up there. Just to, I don't even know who's on base, but I'm just throwing that name up there. I'm just saying how soup things you know, how, how things get through. But I think what they did was, I think Dean and Rossi, I think Rossi went up to Dean and said, hey, man, Brian's going to be my leadoff hitter. And, and uh, Dean was oh, that's interesting. Uh, why? And then he said, because Dean knows how to win games and he gets on base and he scores well. And, uh, you know, it, to me, it's going to take some heat off him. You know, if he drives in 100 from the leadoff spot, that's going to be booyah. And if he drives oh, in yeah. 70 from the leadoff spot, it's going to be like, Hey, I told you, so it was a win-win for Chris. So we didn't do anything different to prepare for that. So he's, I think Chris did it solid. I don't think there's one way or the other. Um, you know, Rizzo was playing golf in Arizona earlier uh, this year, and he goes, well, so what do you think about that? And he goes, he said, yeah, I like it. He goes, yeah, yeah, we're going to make, you know, we're going to make Schwarber and Bayern a ton of money, you know. <laughs> yeah, they're going to have to share the split of money from that. <laughs> yeah, said, well, maybe you ought to work out a deal where you get a cut. And he goes, no, no, we're gonna, we want to win. That's going to help us win. And me and Chris get one, too. He says, I'm on it. And he says, we'll go back to back, back the game, you know. <laughs> that would be cool. Who's of that bunch? Who's the best golfer? Is it? Is it Chris? Is it you know Rizzo? Maybe Lester involved? In your opinion, who would be who's who is the top golfer of that bunch? Oh, they're so competitive. Um, you know, Chris hit the ball way further. Um, <laughs> Anthony's Anthony's a grinder. I, you know, I, I I think I'm going to give Chris the edge. Actually, I'm better than both. There you go. I was waiting for that, Mike. I'm like, I mean, you got to you got to put yourself in there. I like that. Yeah, I grinded it out with them. You know, I'm hitting from the geriatric tees. <laughs> But you know who's good is, is, uh, is Ian Hack, man, and, and he could play. He did a hole in one in a par four. No way! It's, oh, crazy! Like three hundred and fifty-five yard par four, just a hole in one. And also Hendricks is good too. They're both very good golfers. Yeah, yeah. I struggle with golf, man. I feel like my uh, when I was playing baseball growing up, that my swing just did not carry over to the golf course. So I'm like slicing everything, Mike. It's a complete disaster out there. Oh, put some chaps. Put some chapstick on the driver. <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that into account. Don't load it up crazy like it's dripping off there. What about some like pine tar or something? Does pine tar do the trick or just chapstick? That might be a little too sticky. Uh, that might be. That might put more spin on it. You want you want it where it doesn't grab the ball. You just you want to hit knuckleballs. That one will spin it. And then so I learned that trick from from a caddy up here at Shadow Creek. We got to play Shadow Creek, don't we? I was having a tough time because my back was so me I couldn't get through the ball this year. Trying to sure enough, um, straighten out like a like a boat. Oh, man. 
I'll, I'll try it once in a while when, it, when, I'm, when I'm going bad. I'll, I'll throw a little chapstick on it so I can get one in the stairway. <laughs> I love it, yeah. I mean, my ball's going. It's just it's slicing to the right like crazy, so... I'll let uh, I'll I'll have to do that and report back to you. But uh, one last question here, and uh, I'll let you go because I know know you're a busy guy. So over the last three years, going into 2015, 2016, 2017, when we last talked here, you mentioned the value of experience in pitch recognition and anticipating the pitcher's next move, and. I remember you saying how Chris is still gaining that experience and he's not out there looking for one particular pitch like Manny Ramirez used to say he would do and kind of like how David Ortiz said, hey, I'd be sitting on a changeup and that's all I'd be sitting on. So with Chris over the last few years, has his approach changed? Because I, I know there's a lot of people on both spectrums who they want that information, they want to anticipate and not the guess is not the right word, but sitting on one particular pitch, whereas other players, they, they don't want that information. They want to be reactionary and not have any type of distraction thoughts up at the plate. With Chris, has that mindset changed from being a little bit more reactionary to now anticipating the next pitch, or is he still going up there and just letting his talent and his just natural mindset react to whatever pitch is coming? I think as you get older... Uh, you know, you get to be a veteran, you start to lose a little bit of your skills, you slow down a little bit, anticipating pitches, you know, especially you don't want to hit 98, you're going to wait for a slider at 86 or 88, or, you know, and, and you have no problem with the spin and all that. I think that happens later. But when you're young, I just think, you know, right now in the time of career, I think what he's gotten really good at is recognizing, you know, the pitches, you know, whether it's in the strike zone or not, it's it's irrespective, irregardless of the uh, the uh, you know the type of pitch. So I think he, you know he hits a lot of sliders. He's hitting he's getting better at hitting changeups. He went from worst you know to middle of the to the pack with changeups. Um, I mean he hit like oh sixty on changeups as a rookie. You know, of course that's what they point to. You know, it's like yeah okay just throw him a changeup. Okay throw him a changeup. We'll fix it. We'll get it right. You know start you know well he just got better at practicing. And I just spoke, do you know you know what a changeup is? He goes, no, it was a batting practice fastball. That's what it is. So that's, that's what a changeup is. a batting practice fastball. Go up there and look for batting practice fastball if you want. He doesn't like to sit on pitch. So um, my, my feelings are um, that as you get older, I think he'll, he'll start to, you know, with his experience, he's, you know, not going to be a, all the pitches start to look the same after a while unless you're Max Scherzer or Strasburg at their best, you know. Um, you know, a very handful of pitchers have, you know, this stuff that looks very different and acts very different. Um, but the majority of the pitchers in the big leagues, no matter who, okay, 95 is 95, 96 with sink is 96 with sink, you know, they, a slider is a slider, and they just start looking the same. So, so the type of approach that you can take for the majority of the pitchers is that they're, you know, just, you know, Whatever pitcher's coming, just be ready for it. And be quick, you know. Be you know, think, you know, keep keep the thoughts uh, pure and simple. And and you know, there's going to be a time where where you're going to have to anticipate their pitches, just be able to give yourself half a chance. And, you know, it, it, you know, if, if you if you throw 98 and and you get a guy up there that is looking for a changeup, why would you even throw him? You know, I mean, why would you think that as a pitcher? It's still fastball. You know, mm-hmm. the guy's 40 yeah. years old. 
you know, get 40 years old and you have to pull a change up, you know? Right. Did, did, so, so that that's the type of approach I think that Chris is taking right now. The more experience you get means you see in more pitches, get more comfortable with the speed of the game. Um, the majority of the pitchers, they all start to look the same after a while in terms of stuff, ball moving away, ball moving in, high fastballs, sliders, they're all starting to look the same. With like a handful of people that are that are just, you know, kind of uh, you know, the best pitchers in the game. They have they have different stuff. So I see. So I see. And then you then you have to adjust. Those are the guys you might want to say, all right, I gotta look for a pitch in an area now. Right. You gotta right. know what you can handle and what you can't. You know. And, and look for the stuff you can handle, not the stuff you can't handle. Mike, it's always, for me, insightful. I, I can talk hitting and just baseball in general. I know a lot of our listeners want to hear about the Cubs, but love talking hitting with you. I always learn so much, and it kind of makes me want to get a baseball bat and go back out there hitting the cage myself. I'm not going to lie. So uh, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. All right, man. We'll catch you next time. Keep your whole home running like clockwork. From the office to the game room with Xfinity Internet, you'll get the best in-home Wi-Fi experience with reliable speed and coverage. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go online or call 1-800-XFINITY today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Kaiser is off the chain. Everything is in one place for you. Your x-ray will be done there. The doctor will see you there. The labs are there for you. And then the nurses that work with you at Kaiser, they make you feel so at home. They're there to meet your needs. I would not be alive today if I had not had Kaiser Permanente. I feel really, really great knowing there's a place that I can go to make sure that I can maintain good health on a regular basis. Every medical case is unique. Kaiser Foundation Health Plan, the Middle Atlantic Two One Zero One, East Jefferson Street, Rockville, Maryland Two Zero Eight Five Two. Okay, so that was Brendan's conversation with Mike Bryant. Always, I, you know, I think. We, we've heard him on a couple different things. He did an interview on the rant, the live YouTube show uh, over at Cubs Insider. And we've, you know, we've had him on this podcast before, some some written interviews. I, I, I really, I could listen to him talk for hours. He, he just oh has a way, he's, he's got a lot of insight, obviously, to offer as, as you know, in the position that he's in. Uh, but just someone who you, you just I like listening to. He's, he loves the game. That's yeah. the thing. Like, you have a lot of coaches who, you know, it's their job and they, they do it well. But, like, Mike Mike identifies with baseball how Javi identifies with baseball. He genuinely loves the sport. Whenever I talk with him about hitting, it, it like, gets me pumped up. Like, like, like I told Mike, like, I want to go out and swing a bat. That's the effect that he has on, on, I think, a lot of different people. So, interview was fun, Corey. I learned a lot more. My biggest takeaway was Chris's adaptation over the years. You know, Mike and I talked about three years ago about the next changes that he wanted to accomplish. And some of the changes were, one, going to the opposite field more, but two, anticipating what pitchers are going to use to attack Chris. And we talked about the up and in fastball, which Chris has now adapted to in the last few months of the 2019 season. So that was very insightful to me and how he matches some of the data, some of the advanced metrics from like Rapsodo as a tool to guide the probability that these new adjustments will work against those high fastballs. So it's fun to see the actual number side of things, but then using those numbers to allow a player to adapt and feel comfortable and use numbers as a way to gauge your feelings with those adjustments. So once again, really appreciate talking with Mike, learned a lot, and I can't wait to talk to him again. 
Yeah, I think we're we're very lucky. Um, you know, obviously, you and I and, and Cubs Insider in particular for the insight that Mike is willing to give to us. But just to be able to get that insight direct from one of the sources working with someone like Chris, not just because Chris is one of the best players in baseball. Obviously, it's very lucky to have any insight on someone of Chris's caliber. But especially because he is someone that is making so many adjustments. Like there would be a lot of players that it would be cool to hear their process and and thoughts and things like that. But all things considered, they don't, you know, their game has been very similar for a a, a while and they they kind of have carved out who they are as a player. Like Chris is one of those guys who, who might make he's got to be in the upper percentile of guys making active changes to get oh, better no year in and year out. And and we go... I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. Like, he he's improved his contact rate right. at a at historic pace. I, I mean, really, there's no one else who's improved that contact rate with that type of power portfolio. So it's beyond impressive. Right. And and we've talked a lot on here in particular about, I think, you know, and, and obviously it's, it's related to contact rate, but one of the most, I think, impressive things that... Chris did and, you know, is obviously still something he he dials in on. Uh, but we've talked about a good bit is that when he came in as a rookie in 2015 and even amidst putting up a 6.1 war season, he had a 30.6% K rate. And then by the time he gets to 2017 with the Cubs, it's down to 19.2%. And then in 18 and 19 right. following, 23.4 and 22.9. So even though not as low as 2017, like you're talking about a 7, 8% cut in K rate. And what's so impressive about that is that his walk rate has never dipped below 10%. It's always been uh, around 11%-ish, except in 2017 when it was 14.3%. And that was like the big thing with him in 2015 was he strikes out too much. He whiffs too much, even though he's hitting all these homers and he's he's being so productive, he, he strikes out too much. And you and I at the time, Brendan, talked about how who really cares how much he strikes out if he's putting up the numbers that he is which is true and then he cut it anyway and and so I think it's just so impressive he he's one of those guys you can really look at and say like okay here's what he's trying to fix and here's how he did it and here's the numbers that show that it worked and so I think right. to be able to have that kind of insight with Mike is is really fascinating not only from a Cubs perspective but just from a, a baseball perspective um and I, I think another thing that was enjoyable to hear was just some perspective about getting players ready for this type of shortened season. Because I think, you know, obviously, Brendan, everyone listening to this podcast knows that you're a, a very talented baseball player. And, you know, I had your Thank career you. short, cut short by I injuries. Am. But, you know, Unfortunately, you, yes. you've got that firsthand experience. But like, I never, you I know, I'm, I'm obviously a student of the game. I've worked in the game, uh, but I never played. So to me, there's things when I look at, okay, they're going to play an 81-game season or something like that, right? There's things to me that I think, I wonder how this affects this or that. But I don't really know it from a, a personal standpoint necessarily. So it, it, it was very interesting to at least get some thoughts on how does this look for a hitter trying to get ready in two weeks or three weeks? How does this look if it's only 80 games? What does that change uh, from a coach's perspective or a player's perspective? I thought that stuff was was really interesting. And it'll be interesting to hear, obviously, if, if this proposal gets ironed out, what others think on that and you know what this all starts to look like but let's get into 
what is going on. And we, we always offer these caveats, uh, particularly important with this, because I, we don't know how quickly the ball is going to move on this. But as we are coming to you on Monday, May 11th at about 4.15 Central Time, uh, the MLB owners have approved a proposal for getting the 2020 season going. That now goes to the players' union. Uh, and according to Ken Rosenthal, earlier on Monday morning, they will be meeting on Tuesday to discuss this stuff. Uh, and the the gist of this, basically, I, I don't believe that we have like the full proposal, or at least I don't at this minute. Uh, but you know, there's some things that we've heard to expect. It sounds like it's going to be around 81, 82-ish games, something along that, beginning in early July, spring training for a couple weeks, starting in um, a couple weeks in, in, in June. And it sounds like it would be the normal divisions, uh, but the schedule geared towards obviously limiting travel, trying to make things as easy geographically, so not necessarily, you know, you're playing everybody or or that type of thing. Uh, A universal DH is expected, expanded playoffs uh, expected, and then working out whether the spring training would be in the actual spring training facilities or in their home parks, things like that. Uh, So the interesting thing here, Brendan, is obviously, you know, these are all a lot of things that we had heard. We talked about that Trevor Plouffe tweet last week, and these dates all line up, and a lot of that sounds like what he had heard. And really even going back to when they first started talking about how could we get this going again, we heard, you know, kind of around July that's when this, you know, they'd like to get this going. We heard about a shortened season. We've been hearing about, you know, them trying to get the the universal DH. Maybe the rosters are expanded. So a lot of this sounds like what we've been hearing and what they've been hoping for. But the big question and what seems to be being asked by a lot of people on social media and in these articles, will the Players Association accept this offer? Because what is what really seems to be the, the sticking point point is the money. And it sounds like there's going to be a revenue split uh, in this with the owners and the players, but the general sentiment amongst folks who understand these things is that it's at least this first proposal is not one that they expect the Players Association to be super thrilled about and ultimately maybe not accept. Now, these are negotiations, just like anything else. The players do not have to show up on Tuesday and say yes or no, and that's the end of these discussions. Uh, But given that you have a collective bargaining agreement coming up soon anyway, this is something to pay attention to, and and this is not a small thing. I, I know to a lot of people, especially in a situation like this, if we're talking about you know who's getting this million dollars or that you know it it may not seem like the the most important conversation in the world but for the health of the game of baseball and the future of the game of baseball the these this could be a very very important few days Brendan Yeah and it's a positive step last week we talked about potentially having an official announcement and now we have it I I will say I'm a little concerned concerns not the right word just because we don't have all the details of the proposal, but I am watching closely how the players are going to react in terms of their willingness to go play. 
does MLB have the procedures in, in place to test? Do they have the procedures in place to isolate, to trace, etc.? And Sean Doolittle, for example, went on Twitter and stressed that he he wants concrete plans in place, concrete preparative plans in place. And he's using some of the uncertainties health-wise if players were to be infected. And so I think within now and the next few days, we'll hear more about the actual preventative measures in place for, for health. But the the owners got to get this right, man. They got to put the players first. They got to prioritize health first. And it's my hopes that this new proposal is, in fact, doing that and meeting the needs of these players. Yeah. So admittedly, like the revenue sharing stuff and, and things like that is is not 100% my expertise. But my my understanding of the, the issue is that they're proposing uh, a revenue sharing system. And I'm looking at uh, now, I, I know the rule of not trusting Bob Nightingale, but this is what's out there. So I mean, I don't know what you want. Take it with the usual Nightingale grain of salt, but he's one of the reporters on this, so there's not much there's not much we can do, folks. Uh, but he says that the revenue sharing plan would guarantee at least forty eight percent to the players uh, with the universal DH an extra round of the playoffs. But one of the the concerns, at least looking, uh, I'm looking at an article from Brett Taylor of Bleacher Nation. You know, talk about instead of just prorating the salaries and the players getting all of that money with the revenue sharing you know the 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 players are taking a risk right in instead of you know the owners being the ones to bear the burden of the extra revenue loss if it's a revenue sharing split then that puts more of that risk in the players lap now the obvious concern is if they don't play at all or they can't agree to this you know then that's obvious lost money and you know then it's a whole nother issue so I, I think it's going to behoove everyone to get something done but you just have to wonder how many concessions the players are willing to make financially and then you look at like you were just mentioning Brendan you talk about what Sean Doolittle was raising you know they're going to have a lot of questions to answer about how they're planning to make this safe for the players how they're planning to make it safe for whoever else is involved any broadcasters umpires trainers everybody that needs to be there you know as essential to make this process go about uh so i i it 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 sounds like it'll be interesting to see what happens on tuesday with this conversation you know if the players reject this or they propose something else um but the 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 general optics to me i'm 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 a little concerned uh just because again like you do have a cba expiring soon and I think people were already planning on that not going particularly well and being pretty contentious. Uh, and if the players are getting the shorter end of the stick here and, and the owners are looking out for themselves, we already have you know all these talks about cutting minor league teams and cutting minor league games and things like that. Like this is this just it feels like we're on the, 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 the precipice of something pretty dicey as it relates to the game of baseball. You're going to have consequences for the next CBA. That That's my concern. So if you don't get this right, we know in history not having baseball for a season has long-term consequences in 94. 
I don't want that to happen. That's always been my biggest fear is not having baseball for a season. We're, we're having that right now with COVID because of the pandemic. I don't want to have this effect now, the future negotiations, and maybe we'll be without, and this is dark, but I don't want to be without baseball for more than one year now, right? So it's so necessary to get this right. There's no room for error. There's no room for, in my opinion, leverage. You got to get these players in a safe position you got to come to an agreement. There's there's no excuse. There's zero room for error, at, in my opinion, at this point. If you don't get this right, you're going to have a uh, complete disastrous chaos for the next two years. Yeah. So I'm I'm reading this coming across coming across the newswire right now. Uh, a quote from the union head, Tony Clark, this coming from Ken Rosenthal. Tony says, quote, a system that restricts player pay based on revenues is a salary cap, period. And he calls the, a revenue sharing plan a non-starter for the Players Association. So if you pair that All with right. what I just <laughs> said a few minutes ago, which was that this proposal is a revenue sharing model... You can see why we think this is going to be a little interesting yeah. and a little potentially contentious uh, because this is – and, you know, even looking through the replies just – this is this tweet is like two minutes old, so there's not that many. But lo- looking through these replies, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, Tony Clark is ruining baseball or just get a deal done, things like that. And that that is not a good attitude uh, whatsoever. One, because it's just not practical, right? Just get it done and so we can have baseball. Is This is a business for everybody involved. That's not a useful argument to make. Like, we just want baseball, so just do it. Like, that's not helpful. Uh, first of all. Second of all, the players are always out to represent themselves. They, they are always, they're the ones playing the game. The teams are mostly owned by billionaires who have plenty of money. And if the players don't take stands in instances like this, even again, as, as for most of us, if they're arguing over X hundred thousand dollars or X million dollars, it doesn't really resonate with us, right? But this is their job. This is what they have to protect and they're going to do it. Whether we agree with one side or another, this is where the business of it all comes into it. And, and you have to remember that it's a business and the players and the union that they have is literally set up to protect the players and their interests and their financial revenues. So that is going to be a sticking point in this, whether we all like it or not. And, you know, I, I, I tend to think that this is a, a, this is a risky play on the part of the owners um, to try to save as much money for themselves and I, you know, it, the, the players are not going to be happy about that. They're, they're just not. And especially since they're going to be the ones, uh, you know, out there playing and potentially risking their health for however this is uh, about to happen, right? So they're going to try to make this deal as fair for them as they possibly can. Uh, they're not just going to roll over and accept this. So I think the the coming days should be rather interesting. Uh, again, though, like this is the first proposal. This is a negotiation just like anything else. Uh, so I wouldn't inherently expect the owners to come to the table with their most 
player-friendly offer, right? And I wouldn't expect the Players Association to immediately accept what's put in front of them. So we'll see how long this takes, uh, but that is the current proposal that is on the table. We've been kind of following all of these, and this is the one that's out there right now, and it's on the table. So unlike the others, it's not really hypothetical. This has been approved by the owners. They are going to speak with the Players Association, and uh, we will see whether this is something that gets accepted. So on that note, we really have to wait for, for more. I have not read the entire proposal. I'm not an expert in the CBA or things like that. So we'll have to see how these negotiations play out. This is obviously a, a very unique uh, situation that I don't think anyone's really been in before. So we'll have to see about that. But Brendan, I, I just want to get your gut reaction to like, now that this is on the table, we've been hearing about these things a lot. we we do have a general idea of what they're looking for. I I, I wouldn't expect a lot of the the season details to be what is really contentiously argued here, right? I think that's going to be a money thing, a money and a safety thing. But in general, like 82 games, 30-player rosters or so, um, you know, things like that, universal DH, another round of the playoffs, those things I would assume are not likely to change, even if there are uh, negotiations or at least change significantly. Do you have a gut reaction to any of that? A lot of it is, you know, kind of in line with what we heard, but just this general framework of what this might look like if they're able to agree and if they're able to safely pull it off. Did you have any general reaction to that? I like the addition of the playoff teams to 14. So one of my concerns was, and this is all on baseball, by the way, my, my main concern, and as I just said, is on the health and safety of the players. So that, that has to be addressed. But on a baseball-specific level, I like the addition of 14 playoff teams. And my concern was, with a shortened season, is that going to then leave the possibility of teams who are really not appropriate playoff teams of getting in based on randomness and that that might still happen but at the same time when you increase the likelihood then of other teams going into the playoffs maybe then the best teams in those types of series will deserve to win and so I I I do like that I don't think at this point you can get any sense of a normal season there might be an asterisk for you personally in this season you just can't get around that. But having 82 games as a starting point to discuss, that that exceeds my expectations. Again, a couple of weeks ago, I was hoping for maybe 40, 50 games. I just, the uncertainty was so overwhelming that I couldn't even imagine starting spring training in June and starting the season around the 1st of July. It just didn't seem like it was possible at that point. So I, I am encouraged that they're getting plans for an 82-game season, more playoff teams in place. But if they don't get the health and safety prioritized, then this is all for naught. And so that that has to be the number one priority. Yeah, I agree. So uh, I, you know, I've I've made my opinion, I think, on the universal DH known. Uh, I like watching John Lester hit. That is my stance on the matter. I like the DH, though. I think the DH will be good. I think it will be interesting from just a uh, uh, curiosity level how that affects the Cubs. I mean, we've always talked about yeah, Schwarber sure. being a DH for years, so, you know, this is an opportunity for I, I've always been more concerned that the leagues have the same 
policy. I, I think it's just weird that the two leagues don't yeah, play don't by like the that. same rules. Uh, so that's probably more important to me than anything. Um, and, you know, I'm not like going to sit here and say I, I love watching double switches or things like that. But, I, you know, there's a lot of fun moments that come from watching pitchers hit. If that's not something you appreciate, then that's fine. I You know, I think people can have different likes and dislikes, but I get a kick out of watching John Lester bat. I like watching him hit. I like watching Kyle Hendricks get a hit every now and again. Like, I think it's, it's a, you know, it's an interesting little nuance to the game of baseball. And like, personally, for me, Again, like I'm not going to like die on this hill or uh, stop watching baseball if they don't let pitchers hit. But to me, I always sort of liked the idea of these are the nine guys that go in the field. These are the nine guys that hit, right? Like yeah. that That just seemed like the more simple logic to me. And that attitude was obviously taken to the next level when I started watching John Lester hit oppo tanks. <laughs> So, you know, that, that's, that's my preferred brand of baseball, but I, you know, it is what it is. I understand why they're doing this. And, uh, I, mean, I, you know, you know how I am. I, I, I want the DH, yes, so I, I know. could not disagree with you more than, than right now, but yeah, you get, you get the idea. Yeah. Uh, so that's where we're at. Uh, like I said, we can dive into this proposal and more of the revenue sharing stuff. I, I know that we kind of only touched on it to a certain degree in a surface level manner, but wanted to air the interview with Mike and figured it might be best uh, to have a little, you know, this this news is all kind of coming out this afternoon, this morning. Uh, So hopefully we can get a little more detail on it, maybe see more of the proposal, hear more from the players, and and see how Tuesday goes and and any updates in the negotiations. Uh, And then when we come back in a week, or if there is a a deal struck and and baseball is coming back, we'll jump on and and talk about it sooner. Uh, But I think maybe in the next episode, we can try to dive into it a a little more deeply, explain some of these things a little bit more. Uh, But for now, this is all kind of just coming out and, and still is yet to be approved, disapproved, negotiated, etc. So uh, just wanted to kind of touch on that, maybe give you like a primer for, you know, if on Tuesday, like, you know, it gets rejected and things like that, like it will almost assuredly be because of the revenue sharing plan. Uh, So just wanted to at least put that on your radar. Uh, And then in the coming week or weeks, however long this takes to, to knock out, we can dive in a little bit more of what exactly this proposal is, what it means for everybody, what it might mean for the future of baseball, future negotiations, and things like that. Uh, But I think other than that, that is all that we have for you. Uh, as always, we hope that this episode finds you in a good place. Uh, we're, We're several weeks into this now, so I know that Everybody's situation is different, uh, and everybody is getting through this in in their own way. Uh, but I, you know, Brendan and I do mean sincerely that, however, this whole situation has affected you uh, genuinely. I hope that this episode finds you in an okay spot. I, I know that some are going to be better than most, uh, but I, I just hope that you guys are okay, that you're safe. Uh, stuff with your job, your friends, your family is okay at the very least. I think that's a, a fair bar to aim for uh, in. in in a a particular period like this. And as always, with everything going on, we appreciate you guys carving out a little bit of your time to listen to Brendan, I, and in this particular occasion, Chris Bryant's dad, Mike 
Bryant. So thank you all for listening. We will be back with you soon. Like I said, if, if it necessitates sooner rather than later uh, to talk about perhaps baseball getting on the track to coming back. Uh, otherwise, we will talk to you next Tuesday morning. We'll record on Monday, and we'll we'll take a look at where things are with this proposal and everything like that. So thank you guys for listening. Be well, and as always, we end by saying, Go Cubs! Our homes today are like little cities full of different interneting boroughs, like the entertainment district in the living room or the virtual fitness center in the garage. And Xfinity Internet keeps it all running smoothly with reliable speed to power all your devices at once. You get coverage around town, from the financial district home office to the spa. Xfinity Internet keeps your little city humming with reliable speed and coverage. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Find great offers and value today from Xfinity. Go online or call 1-800-XFINITY to learn more. Restrictions apply. Suicide loves silence. Break the silence. Don't be afraid to ask the question. Talking about thoughts of suicide may be a source of relief to the person at risk. Listen to them. Let them talk. And let them know you care and are concerned. Suicide is preventable. Learn how to discuss your concerns. Recognize it. Talk about it. Act on it. Learn more at RecognizeTalkAct.org. A message from the Virginia Department of Health. Keep your whole home running like clockwork from the office to the game room with Xfinity Internet. You'll get the best in-home Wi-Fi experience with reliable speed and coverage. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go online or call 1-800-XFINITY today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Keep your whole home running like clockwork from the office to the game room with Xfinity Internet. You'll get the best in-home Wi-Fi experience with reliable speed and coverage. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go online or call 1-800-XFINITY today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.